You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 345th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we've used the last couple of shows to talk about Dan Sickles' life story and to trace the origin of the bad blood and mistrust between him and George Meade, which would all play a part in what happened on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. As we said at the end of the last show, the point we wanted to make is that with regard to Sickles and Meade and the danger to the entire Union position at Gettysburg on the second day of the battle, well, the events of July 2nd didn't take place in a vacuum, but instead occurred within the context of who Sickles was, who Meade was, and the already strained relationship between the two men. So, what did happen on July 2nd? The long and the short of it is that on July 2nd, 1863, Dan Sickles found himself serving under a commander he didn't particularly care for and assigned to a position he didn't at all like. As we talked about previously on the podcast, George Meade, after his arrival at Gettysburg, took that moonlit ride to survey the federal position. His route took him southward from Cemetery Hill, along Cemetery Ridge, toward the Round Tops. Once his ride was complete, he went to his new headquarters at the Widow Leister's house and used a hastily drawn map to indicate the positions he desired for the infantry corps then on the field or soon to arrive. The 12th, 11th, and 1st Corps would hold the Federal right on the hills nearest Gettysburg, forming the hook of the famous Fishhook line of defense, while Hancock's 2nd Corps came next, occupying the northern end of Cemetery Ridge, and Sickles' 3rd Corps would extend the line southward. Together, the 2nd and 3rd Corps would form the shank of the Fishhook. In taking the specified position at the southern end of the Federal line, Sickles was to relieve Brigadier General John Geary's division of the 12th Corps, Geary's division would then march to Culp's Hill to rejoin the rest of its parent unit. 
Meanwhile, the V Corps would remain behind the front line as the Army's reserve until the arrival of John Sedgwick's Big Sixth Corps, which on the morning of July 2nd was still in the midst of its epic forced march to the battlefield. Having thus laid out a satisfactory line, the famous fishhook line of defense, Meade then focused most of his attention on his right and center, the sectors against which the Confederates were visibly concentrated. Nevertheless, sometime between 6 and 7 a.m., he sent his son and aide, 19-year-old Captain George Meade Jr., to check the position of the Third Corps on the Army's left. Riding south from Army headquarters, Meade Jr. found Sickles' command post just west of the Tawnytown Road. Young Meade failed to talk to Sickles, who was resting inside his tent, but heard from a staff officer that the Third Corps remained out of position because Sickles was unsure of the ground the Army commander wished him to occupy. Captain Meade hastened back to his father with this disturbing information. General Meade then forcefully reiterated his earlier instructions to Sickles, that is to move the Third Corps to the left of Hancock's II Corps and occupy the position formerly held by Geary's division of the Twelfth Corps. Upon returning to the Third Corps, Meade Jr. delivered his father's message to Sickles himself. Sickles replied that his men were already in motion, but grumbled that Geary's supposed position had been a simple bivouac area with no clearly defined front line. Captain George Randolph, the Third Corps' chief of artillery, then asked Meade Jr. to convey a request to Army headquarters for Brigadier General Henry Hunt, the Army's chief of artillery, to come down and survey the line the Corps was taking up for the best battery positions. As Dan Sickles left to join his troops, young Meade rode back to the widow Leister's house. Around two hours later, about 9 a.m., Sickles' last two brigades arrived from Emmitsburg to bring the Third Corps up to full strength. According to most battle narratives, George Meade became increasingly preoccupied with the Army's right as the morning progressed. As 12th Corps Commander Henry Slocum communicated his concerns that the Confederates were massing in that sector for an attack on the, that end of the Union line. Rather than await an assault, Meade briefly contemplated launching a spoiling attack but abandoned the idea because of the broken nature of the terrain around Culp's Hill. His focus nonetheless remained on his right flank until Sickles arrived at Army headquarters at about 11 a.m., reporting his continued uncertainty about the position assigned to his corps. As we mentioned just a few minutes ago, Sickles had grumbled to Meade Jr. that he was unsure where to go because Geary's division, which he was supposed to relieve at the southern end of the fishhook position, had been massed in a general bivouac area and didn't occupy a specific line. Granted, the exact details of Meade's orders to Sickles, the time they were delivered, and whether they were verbal or written, is all unclear. 
But nevertheless, Sickle surely understood the commanding general's intent was that, as Meade testified afterward to the Committee on the Conduct of the War, quote, his right was to rest upon General Hancock's left, and his left was to extend to the Round Top Mountain, plainly visible, if it was practicable, to occupy it. What was troubling Dan Sickles the most that morning almost certainly wasn't doubt about where he was supposed to position his troops, but rather the fact that he didn't like the line he had been assigned. And arguably, the position assigned to the Third Corps was the poorest of any held by any unit of the Army, with much of it along low ground. What most troubled Sickles was his belief that the higher ground that ran almost parallel to his line, some three-quarters of a mile to his front, would dominate his position. The Emmitsburg Road ran along the crest of this high ground, which was also crowned by the farmer Sherfee's Peach Orchard, where, for the moment at least, Buford's Union cavalrymen were posted, keeping a careful eye to the west and south and providing flank support. The truth of the matter is that, though it did have its weaknesses, the ground assigned to Sickles, there along the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge and extending toward the Round Tops, simply had to be held in order for the Army of the Potomac to maintain its formidable, continuous line of battle around the entire length of the fish hook. Yet Sickles' attention remained fixed on that higher ground to his front, and as the hours ticked by on the morning of July 2nd, the Third Corps commander, perhaps with visions of Chancellorsville dancing in his head, increasingly became convinced that the Confederates were preparing for a crushing assault on his end of the Union line. Sometime around 9 a.m., Sickles sent his senior staff officer, Major Henry Tremaine, to Army headquarters to communicate his worries. But Meade, at least according to Tremaine, seemed indifferent to Sickles' concerns. Dan Sickles' anxieties continued to mount, especially after he noticed Buford's troopers departing from the peach orchard. You see, earlier that morning, Buford had asked Cavalry Commander Alfred Pleasanton that his men be withdrawn, as they and their horses were worn out not just from the previous day's fighting, but from weeks of continuous campaigning. Pleasanton ran Buford's request past Meade, who approved it, assuming, as a matter of course, that Pleasanton would replace Buford's men there at the southern end of the Union line with another, fresher, cavalry force. But in one of the most egregious federal mistakes at Gettysburg, Pleasanton failed to do this, and so when Buford's men trotted away from the peach orchard, no one arrived to take their place. Sometime between 10 and 11 a.m., probably closer to 11, Sickles paid a visit to Army headquarters at the Leicester House. Sickles believed that Meade wasn't paying sufficient attention to the Army's left, and he was more convinced than ever of the unsatisfactory nature of the Third Corps' assigned line. Sickles told Meade about the higher ground to his front, which, he said, would serve as an excellent artillery platform 
and expressed his opinion that the enemy was gearing up for an attack against his position. He wanted Meade to come see for himself, but Meade declined. Before departing headquarters, Sickles asked if he could position his troops in a way he, quote, should deem most suitable, end quote. Meade replied, quote, certainly, within the limits of the general instructions I have given you, any ground within those limits you choose to occupy, I leave to you, end quote. In other words, Meade, as he would with any corps commander, was leaving Sickles the discretion to choose the particular ground his troops occupied, as long as his line conformed to the Army's general defensive scheme and was consistent with his orders to connect with Hancock's left and extend southward toward the Round Tops. Before riding away, Sickles also repeated the earlier request that Artillery Chief Hunt visit the Third Corps sector to give his opinion on suitable battery positions. Meade agreed, and Hunt left Army headquarters with Sickles. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says... See you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Instead of taking Henry Hunt directly south along Cemetery Ridge, Dan Sickles guided him in a southwesterly direction down the Emmitsburg Road, all the way to the peach orchard. Sickles explained to Hunt he would much rather occupy this higher ground instead of the lower ground just to the east that lay along the line Meade wished the Third Corps to occupy. Hunt listened carefully as Miss Sickles made his case. The ground there along the Emmitsburg Road was higher than over yonder where Sickles was supposed to post his troops on the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge. 
and the peach orchard would indeed serve as a fine position for artillery. But... But, as Hunt, the professional military man, explained to Sickles, the political general, advancing out here would dangerously extend the federal line and break Sickles' connection with Hancock's left. Sickles' proposed position would also mean that there would be a vulnerable salient formed at the Peach Orchard, which the enemy could strike simultaneously from two sides. Most importantly, though, Sickles simply didn't have enough troops to defend so lengthy a position, as it would nearly double the length of the line that Meade had assigned to him. However, Sickles remained uneasy and unconvinced by Hunt's arguments, and before the artillerist departed to attend to affairs elsewhere, Sickles pressed Hunt as to whether he should advance his men and take up the line he proposed. Hunt replied, not on my authority. But before riding off, Hunt did suggest that a reconnaissance of the woods west of the Emmitsburg Road might be both prudent and enlightening. Soon after Hunt galloped away, Sickles ordered Colonel Hiram Burden to lead a reconnaissance into the trees that lined Seminary Ridge just 600 or so yards to the west of the Peach Orchard in an effort to better discern the enemy's intentions. Burden selected four companies of his first United States sharpshooters, a total of about a hundred men, for the task. Distinctive in their dark green uniforms and carrying Sharp's breech-loading rifles, Burden's expert marksmen advanced across the fields, their force augmented by the 210 soldiers of the 3rd Main Infantry. Advancing into the suspicious woods around noon, they soon made contact with three Alabama regiments of Cadmus Wilcox's brigade of Richard Anderson's division. Wilcox's Alabamans were at what was then the southern end of the Confederate line. A sharp firefight ensued, with the two sides exchanging shots for 20 minutes or perhaps half an hour before Burden, facing superior numbers and having already lost almost 70 men killed or wounded, ordered a retreat to the east side of the Emmitsburg Road. It was Burden's report that the enemy was present in force just across the way that finally clinched it for Dan Sickles. He was now fully convinced the Confederates were preparing to attack his position. All morning he had tried to alert Meade to this, but the Army commander had paid little attention to his concerns and had been entirely negligent in minding the Army's left, or at least so thought Sickles. Believing that he had no other choice but to take matters into his own hands, Sickles, at about 2 p.m., without orders and without even notifying Meade, abandoned his designated line and marched his men forward to what he thought was a much better position, hoping to secure the high ground to his front before the enemy had a chance to do so. Dan Sickles justified his decision and would do so until his dying day by explaining, quote, I took up that line because it enabled me to hold commanding ground, which, if the enemy had been allowed to take, as they would have taken it if I had not occupied it in force, would have rendered our position on the left untenable, and, in my judgment, would have turned the fortunes of the day 
hopelessly against us. End quote. Dan Sickles would always take full responsibility for his action, claiming he simply did what he thought was best. However, despite his best intentions, by rashly advancing the Third Corps to a new position, far forward of what Meade intended, the truth is that Sickles imperiled the entirety of the Federal line and placed his own men and the rest of the Army of the Potomac in serious danger. In describing Sickles' new position, we'll move from south to north, so David Burney's division will be up first, with J. Hobart Ward's mixed brigade of New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Maine regiments forming the left of Burney's line, and with Ward's own left resting on the massive, jumbled boulders of Devil's Den. In describing this geological feature, one Union soldier wrote, that it was as though, quote, nature, in some wild freak, had forgotten herself and piled great rocks in mad confusion together. Four guns of Captain James Smith's 4th New York Battery also took up positions atop Devil's Den. Ward's line extended northwesterly from Devil's Den across the tree-covered Hawks Ridge and toward the Rose Farm's 20-acre field of wheat, where Colonel Regis de Trobriand's brigade took up position. De Trobriand's regiments were stretched paper-thin in the wheat field, over and atop Stony Hill, and on toward the Peach Orchard, where the soldiers of Burney's final brigade, under Charles Graham, took up positions. Facing both to the south and west, Graham's Pennsylvanians formed the salient in Sickles' advanced line. All in all, Burney's division was spread dangerously thin, and there unavoidably developed a number of yawning gaps in the line, gaps that would soon be plugged by artillery from both the Third Corps and from batteries rushed forward from the Army's artillery reserve. The men of Andrew Humphrey's division moved forward to the Emmitsburg Road, north of the Peach Orchard. Humphreys aligned two of his brigades in a line that extended north along the roadway. On his left, and connecting to the right of Graham's line north of the Peach Orchard and near the Trossel Farm, were the soldiers of Colonel William Brewster's Excelsior Brigade. Meanwhile, Joseph Carr positioned the men of his brigade to the right of Brewster, his line extending to a point on the Emmitsburg Road a few hundred yards south of the Nicholas Cadori house and barn. The regiments of hum Humphrey's 3rd Brigade, under Colonel George Burling, designated as the Corps' Reserve, were parceled out to fill gaps in the 3rd Corps line, with most of them sent over to Burney. Watching as the 3rd Corps advanced, a bewildered Winfield Scott Hancock wondered what Sickles was doing. Some of Hancock's men couldn't help but be caught up in the martial pageantry of it all. One soldier, writing well after the war, tried his best to capture the moment. Quote, the sun shone brightly on their waving colors and flashed scintillating rays from their burnished arms as with well-aligned ranks and even steps they moved proudly across the field. 
Away to the right, along Cemetery Ridge, the soldiers of the Second Corps, leaving their coffee and their cards, crowded to the front, where they gazed with soldierly pride and quickened pulse on the stirring scene. End quote. But no matter how stirring the scene, Winfield Hancock was none too impressed, immediately realizing that the security of his own left was jeopardized by Sickles' inexplicable forward movement, and a concerned Grim Hancock predicted that it wouldn't be long before the Third Corps would come tumbling back. Dan Sickles didn't bother to notify George Meade of his advance, nor did anyone else report it to the army commander, who, for the moment, remained in total ignorance of the unfolding situation. From his headquarters, Meade had just finished wiring a status report to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington, reporting that he had been in position all day, awaiting Lee's next move, and anticipating the imminent arrival of Sedgwick's 6th Corps. Around 3 p.m., Meade sent off couriers to all his corps commanders, summoning them to the Leicester House for a meeting. Most of the top Union brass soon arrived, but Sickles was noticeably absent. Twice he had turned down Meade's summons, since he was just then too busy repositioning his corps and preparing to meet an attack. But the third time Meade sent for him, it was a direct order, and it was clear there could be no more excuses, and so Sickles made his way north to the Leicester house. When Sickles arrived, he found Meade seething with anger. You see, shortly before Sickles' arrival, Chief Engineer Governor K. Warren had reined up at headquarters with the astonishing news that the Third Corps was not in its assigned position at the left end of the Union line, but it was, instead, advanced well to the front. This was the first time that Meade had learned of Sickles' unauthorized movement, and when he spotted Dan riding up to the Leicester house, a furious George Meade told him, quote-unquote, in a few sharp words, to not even dismount, but to instead turn right back around and return to the Third Corps' lines, and that he, Meade, would ride out and meet him there. I never saw Meade so angry, said Staff Officer William Payne, which is quite a statement, considering that George Meade was known for his ferocious temper. At any rate, the sound of artillery fire was now distinctly heard off to the south. Confronted now with an unfolding crisis, Meade turned to George Sykes, whose 5th Corps had been held in reserve, and directed him to march his three divisions quickly to the south and to occupy the ground originally assigned to Sickles and to hold it, quote, at all hazards. Meade, with Warren in tow, then galloped south. On the way, the Army commander directed his chief engineer to continue on to Little Round Top and assess the situation from that vantage point, while he would ride out to confer with Sickles. The artillery fire between the Federal guns at the Peach Orchard and the Confederate batteries drawn up to the west and southwest had grown quite lively by the time Meade arrived. The Army commander angrily demanded to know what Sickles had done. 
Sickles did his best to explain himself, telling me that he thought he had acted within the scope of the instructions he had been given earlier that morning, and that he merely thought to take possession of this higher ground to his front before the enemy had a chance to do so. Cutting Sickles off and shouting above the roar of the cannons, Meade explained to Sickles that the peach orchard was quote-unquote neutral ground, which could be commanded by the guns of both sides, and the reasons Sickles wouldn't be able to hold it applied equally to the enemy if they had seized it first. Meade also told Sickles that his corps was far too extended, that his men had advanced well beyond any immediate support, and that both of his flanks were now exposed. You cannot hold this position, Meade barked, but the enemy will not let you get away without a fight. In the face of Meade's anger and logic, Dan Sickles rather sheepishly asked whether he should pull his men back to their original position. I wish to God that you could, Meade famously replied, but the enemy won't let you. And George Meade was right for just then the Confederate tide, in the form of Longstreet's belated attack, was sweeping forward from Seminary Ridge. 